along with your station. We are attempting to decalcify your third eye. I am your host, J.F. Bay. This is the Third Eye High Podcast. We deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture. I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. Peace, love, and more light. As we continue on with the book report series, I got another awesome book I want you guys to add to your libraries. Are you ready? Grab your tea. Grab your beverages, roll you up something, whatever you got to do, sit back and listen. This is the audio experience of the audio book on steroids, right? Because <laughs> it's not your average uh, audio book, right? We're going to actually go into some of these uh, literary works of some great authors that made awesome contributions to humanity, you know, by preserving the truth. So now in true so-called black history fashion, right? I just wanted to open up our minds to uh, other literature, right? Opposed to just the so-called black history books and all that stuff. They they try to cram down our throats every uh, February, you know? And they just keep regurgitating the same, you know, accolades and, you know, the Harriet Tubman's and the George Washington Carver and the Garrett, when, when these people are all great, but there also are great uh, feats and works and stories and testimonies that, that have been buried throughout history to show that our ancestors of the past, they triumphed over a lot of challenges and mainly the challenges brought upon, brought upon by this country, or should I say this government. And there is a lot of the history that's buried to where, yeah, get over the slavery story, right? As they tell us, you know, oh, then they, they have the critical race theory argument and, you know, that's promoting racism. And when a lot of that history they, they teach in schools is all bullshit and they actually whitewash the real story and the real atrocities that happen because the concept of racism, the institution of racism, it's all rooted in administration, policy and policy enforcers and we're speaking of these elected officials these people that at one time our vote didn't even count but we voted in these particular people throughout time that all reinforced the system of what you call racism or so-called white supremacy but it's nothing supreme because if you got to keep rigging the game then you can't be of a supreme race because in spite of all this adversity our people still make shit happen, right? In spite of all this, we still are making history. Or should I say our story? Because I'm not a historian. I'm more of an extensive researcher dealing with our story. So I would be an our historian, right? Salute to all my our historians out there. Those that want to preserve the true story of our culture to pass on to the babies, right? Because we got to give them some real jewels. We can't just take them jewelry shopping. We got to give them some real jewels, right? Give them something of value. And what's of value is their real story, the story of their greatness, the story of overcoming adversity no matter what. In spite of this oppression, we still shine, right? In spite of the, the foot on our neck, we still rise. We still get busy. We still get to it. So to add this to 
your libraries. Today's edition of the Book Report series, we're going to review a book, New York Times bestseller, right? This book sold millions of copies. And the power of books, it allows you to tap into broader perspectives that might free you from being a prisoner of your previous perception, right? Because a lot of us, you know, we look at history through a distorted lens. The propaganda that was pushed to us through public schools and the shit that was told to us. And many of us, after we got out of school, we, we didn't fact check none of this stuff. You know what I'm saying? We didn't even really see like, yo, is any of this shit real? Or like, was it told to us in a particular fashion to uh, promote or project a particular reality on us that we would project on ourselves and our children generation? This this uh, state of inferiority. Right. So now we're going to get into something. We got a powerful, powerful build to go over today, guys. New York Times bestseller, and this book is called The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America by Richard Rothstein. This book is written by a member of the Jewish community. But so we're not arguing about one race, you know, being superior over the other. We're speaking of humanity gravitating towards universal truth. And I'm open to, to examine the truth regardless of what nationality presents it. Because truth is one universal language. It is what it is. So this book here, Our Forgotten History of How Our Government, see, our government segregated America. See, we we find ourselves often arguing with people, arguing with people about, I'm not racist or is a person racist or is there racism in America when the the government itself implemented these policies and set up administration after administration after administration to disenfranchise one group of people, our people. So we, we can't pretend like this stuff isn't real, this stuff isn't taking place, it's not happening when it is happening and it's happening, you know, on a global scale. But we have to really understand that most of this story has been buried to protect the guilty, right? <laughs> to where everyone says, well, there's no more racism because, you know, the average person you see on the street isn't uh, treating you such a way or outwardly, outwardly calling you out your name. So then you don't equate that to racism treatment. But we're speaking of a particular policy. Because this was policy in this country. So we're going to go over something. I'm going to go over a few chapters in this book. And I'm just going to present the the scholarship to qualify my stance. Because the color of law. Now all of this is key when you're dealing with identity. Right? Because they trick the people to adopt a particular identity. Right. This black thing got nothing to do with your national origin, black African and all this. All of these terms were put together to reinforce this system of white supremacy, this system of racism, disenfranchisement, etc. So we're going to examine this book here. New York Times bestseller, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History 
of how our government segregated America. So before I get into the book, I'm going to qualify with some terms because it's cast spells. That's why it's called spelling. And if you you're not privy to the words in which they're used in context, then, you know, you could define a word and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm colored. Well, what does colored mean? What does it mean to be colored? What is the definition of color? Because they have a lot of grants and a lot of programs and a lot of funds and a lot of, you know, money allocated to this group called people of color. But if you're not classified as white, i.e. the property owner that has the right to vote, that applies to everyone else on the planet. See, see how this is tricky? So in terms of we'll put out, uh, you know, racial equity programs, you know, the government, we want to help the minority, we want to help people of color. Well, they're also speaking of the Indian, they're speaking of the Asian, they're speaking of everyone that's not classified as white. So when they, they make it seem like, well, we're just going to help black people and the, the people that we keep imposing this uh, form of racism on, we're going to help them out. And otherwise, they help everyone else on the list that's under this banner of people of color when it's all a farce. So to look at the real uh, definition behind this, we're going to go to Black's Law Dictionary. Black's Law Dictionary, second edition. So what is the true definition of color? So when they say people of color, what are they referring to? So the definition of color, an appearance, a semblance or simulacrum, as distinguished from that which is real, a prima facie or apparent right, hence a deceptive appearance, a plausible assumed exterior, concealing a lack of reality, a disguise or pretext. So the original definition is saying something that's not even real. So we're hiding behind an identity that's not a national origin. It's not a particular race of people. It's a figment of your imagination. Henceforth, they can shoot a person in the street that identifies with being a person of color. Because did I really commit a crime? How is it that police shoot someone in the street? Someone of color, right? A deceptive appearance, an extumed ex exterior concealing a lack of reality so in reality they didn't commit murder that's why people are protesting talking about police brutality when there's no term in the law books called police brutality if the police kills you it's called murder why is it they've been arguing police brutality all this time because the people they killed fall under this particular class that doesn't exist or the class that's invisible to the other classes so the term color or black all denotes to a legal term in law called civilitaire mortus, meaning your rights are civilly dead in the eyes of the law. One of the famous Dred Scott cases, Judge Taney, Judge uh, Taney says a black man has no rights that a white man is bound to respect. See, because you don't exist under that idea because they're not white. They became white by way of legislation. And 1681, they started to perpetrate this class called white. A free white person was a property owner. 
<laughs> that applied to many races. But later it was narrowed down to this argument of black and white. So they can perpetuate this institution of slavery without physical chains. Kind of a mental slavery, if you will. And the crazy thing, the other half of the definition. So the top half of the definition, the appearance, the semblance of or assembly crumb, as distinguished from that which is real, a prima facie or apparent right, hence a deceptive appearance, a plausible assumed exterior, a lack of reality, concealing a lack of reality, a disguise or pretext. So now the bottom half of the definition, the word also means the dark color of the skin, showing the presence of Negro blood, and hence it is equivalent to African descent or parentage. Do you see the spell that was casted? They just said the color, color refers to something that's not real in reality. And then they said it refers to the African race. But, but no one on the continent of Africa is called an African. If you live in Egypt, you're an Egyptian. If you live in Nigeria, you're a Nigerian. There's 52 nations in Africa. So you can't say you're an African African. If someone's from Europe, they're going to specify if they're a Brit, right? If they're from London, they're going to specify this. And this is all key because it denotes to homeland. You can't be from the entire continent of Africa and call yourself an African African. Why is it in 2023, these people that were allegedly stole from Africa, they still haven't told you what nations you were taken from? Or these nations haven't rallied on your behalf to seek out reparations and compensation and repairing the damage that was caused by this government. But I don't want to go too far off. I got to set the premise before once we go into this book, because this stuff is disturbing. So now what does color of law mean? So now we see what color means in the law dictionary. So now we can deal with a population of people that we classified as a color that don't really exist legally on paper. So color of law refers to the appearance of legal authority or an apparently legal right that may not exist. The term is often used to describe the abuse of power under the guise of state authority and is therefore illegal. The term was used in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, when the color of law was synonymous with the state action and referred to an official whose conduct was so closely associated with a state that the conduct was, the conduct was deemed to be the action of that state. The act grants citizens the right to sue government officials and their agents for using their power to violate civil rights. An example in the history of the re, the re, Relining, which can be seen in the map from Syracuse, New York. So now it's key, right? Because the deprivation of rights under color of law, I've actually used that form on a lot of, uh, you know, people helping them to save their jobs when people tried to force this uh, experimental vaccine on them, which is against your rights anyway. That along with a religious exemption, just using God's word from the Bible. See, they fear the God in you and your competence of the God that's inside of you, not a mystery God outside of you. But to go back to this, they were allowed to operate these fraudulent policies and implement them, and it all seemed legal because they only perform this discrimination upon people of a particular group that doesn't exist legally, doesn't exist. So the issues that they go through, 
doesn't matter. That's why you're in the street screaming black lives matter when murder is a crime. You shouldn't have to scream that because no other race has to scream that their life matters. They're protected because they have a political identity. They belong to an actual family, a nation, right? The, the, the population of the planet is divided into families of nations, right? Not colors because the world isn't a crayon box. You wouldn't call the yellow man a yellow man. No one else gets referred to as that. That's why they show you on the application white slash Caucasian because they're referring to the descendants of the Caucasus Mountains, those who lived in the caves. Part of their identity, but the original Caucasian had melanated skin. So they're even hiding their identity there. They're not the original Europeans because Europe was named after Queen Europa, melanated sister with a big afro. It's all historically documented, but... Let's get to the book, shall we? Because I always have to set the premise for when we go into the literature that we're reading because the author already did the hard work for us. But I like to kind of dispel or de... uh, Yeah, kind of dispel the words that that we use uh, so freely today and that we find ourselves in arguments just because we can't understand the context in which words are being used. So let's get into it. New York Times bestseller, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. One of my favorite books, man. So we're going to start off with a chapter. We're going to start off with the very first chapter. Public Housing, Black Ghettos. Chapter two, public housing, black ghettos. Now, this is key because when they speak of this uh, public housing situation and the projects and all that, the original ghettos were for poor whites. This later changed by way of policy and administration after administration. See, the times of slavery worsened after slavery ended. What are you talking about? After they released the physical chains, they applied the mental chains. And this mental slavery has been going on far longer than chattel slavery. So now you have people stuck on a mental plantation picking mental cotton, if you understand the analogy. Let's get into it. Um, Let's go. Negroes can live anywhere when uh, Frankenstein mayor with Frankenstein the mayor. Negroes do your duty, November 6th. By the late 1940s, as white families increasingly found shelter in private market, more African-Americans than white families remained dependent on public housing. Projects built for whites ran the danger, projects built for whites ran the danger of having vacant units that only African-Americans would want to fill. In 1940 and 49, the Detroit City Council held hearings on 12 proposed projects, seven of which were to be situated in outlying, predominantly white areas. If approved, they would have set Detroit on a hard-to-reverse trajectory of residential integration. But Jeffrey's successor, Albert Cobo, who had also campaigned against Negro invasions, in public housing, 
vetoed eight of the 12, including all seven in the white neighborhoods. Only projects in predominantly African-American areas were approved, further solidifying the city's segregation. In Northern California, Richmond was not only was, was not the only community in which the government created segregation. The San Francisco Housing Authority in 1942 constructed a massive development to house 14,000 workers and their families at the Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard and began to assign apartments on a non-discriminatory first-come, first-served basis. The Navy uh, objected, insisting that integration would cause racial conflict among workers and interfere with ship repair. Local officials bowed to the Navy, to the Navy's demand, and moved African American tenants to separate sections. Because discrimination by landlords left African American migrant workers facing a greater housing shortage than whites, the authority, the authority's policy resulted and many vacant units in the white section, while black war workers' housing needs went unmet. The San Francisco Housing Authority attempted to recruit white tenants by placing advertisements in light rail commuter cars. Despite the long waiting list of African Americans for apartments, this combination of vacant white units and waiting lists for black units increasingly characterized public housing nationwide. So the original public housing was for these poor whites. And they hide the fact of this to where later they all got subsidies to actually find real housing when they locked in this market for where African-Americans would only be subject to government housing. This was an experiment, henceforth a project to further this segregation. But if slavery ended and everybody's free and equal, we still have segregation today. Henceforth, your money's no good here. To where many of us had the money to buy homes and they wouldn't even sell to you. The banks wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't broker the deal. All of this stuff. So it's like outwardly, openly, outwardly, I don't call you out your name. I don't call you a nigga, so I'm not racist. But then my policy at my institution is not going to afford you the benefits that every human should get so I can secretly discriminate and you can't find the racism, right? Because everyone says in America, I'm not racist. So you can't find a racist. It's like looking for Waldo because racism is an idea and you can't see an idea in someone's head, right? Continuing on, the Western... Where are we? Uh, okay. Uh, in 1942, the San Francisco Authority announced its resolve to maintain segregation by unanimously adopting a resolution. In the selection of tenants, we shall not insofar as possible enforce the uh, commingling of races, but shall insofar as possible maintain and preserve the same racial composition which exists in the neighborhood where a project is located. One commissioner resigned in protest of the policy, which replicated the neighborhood composition rules that Harold Ike had adopted. 
Responding to protests by civil rights groups and African-American residents, the authorities said it would cease discriminating. But by 18, excuse me, by 1944, only five white families reside in the West Side courts. 136 units and no African-Americans lived in the other developments. So they talking about this one project that had only white families and all the rest of the projects were, I mean, the apartments were abandoned. And someone started to entice these white families to move elsewhere and they would set up these projects to be a project to house our people, kind of like a military compound. Hmm, interesting. A housing authority commissioner explained that in West Side courts, we deliberately allowed a few white families to go in so as not to establish a purely Negro project. By the end of World War II, over one third of San Francisco's African-Americans barred from private housing, barred from private housing, even if they had the money, almost everywhere in the city were residing in segregated public projects, either in the Western Addition or in temporary Hunter's Point Barracks. The only integrated war project in the Bay Area was that housed shipyard workers in Marin County across the Golden Gate Bridge from the city. The project was not integrated purposely. The first buildings were dormitories for single men and the shipyard's rapid expansion left no time to separate the races. As workers flooded in, officials could barely keep up just handling our blankets and pillows and assigning rooms that were available. Perhaps to their surprise, the officials found that integration presented few problems among the workers. So the biracial character of the project was maintained when workers' families arrived. After a few years, however, private housing in the area became available to whites, and the Marin Project too became predominantly African American. So when they first had these particular projects, they had black and white families, and there was no issue until they until they started to push the propaganda that you whites aren't safe here, and matter of fact, we're going to give you better housing, single family homes, and give you grant money and access to this, and we're going to make sure these projects are filled up with only black people. See, they were creating a system to where they would further segregation. Continuing on. The waffling of San Francisco's elected leaders and housing administrators about whether to segregate public projects like similar well, uh, waffling uh, in Boston and elsewhere makes sense only if these officials knew that the segregation they imposed was wrong if not unconstitutional. In 1949, the San Francisco Board of Supervisions adopted a resolution requiring non-segregation for future housing projects and for, for filing vacancies on a non-discriminatory basis. But the city's housing authority voted to reject the new policy. And as a result, all public housing construction was suspended. A compromise was eventually reached the Housing Authority agreed not to discriminate in future projects while maintaining its segregation policy in those already that existed. When the authority proceeded in 1952 to build 
one of its already planned projects for whites only, their project for whites only, the NAACP took it to court. The case went to trial in 1953. The Housing Authority chairman testified that the agency's intent was to localize occupancy of Negroes in the Western Edition and ensure that no African Americans would reside in projects inhabited by whites. And they had white only projects. They should have kept that. See, our people didn't want to live in no projects. They created this system. But it was all for low income families, black and white. Because as we know, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free the slaves. It freed white slaves. Pay attention. Because many of these poor whites were the first recipients of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was the first system of welfare, where they got land grab subsidies, farming subsidies, tools and supplies, and the Homestead Act of 1866, where they were given up to 160 acres for free. And they disenfranchised our people, and we never got the 40 acres in the mule. So the welfare system later became a degradation and an arm to this public housing, which would further disenfranchise our people. After this administration and this government amassed a wealth of profits generationally off the backs of our ancestors, not even an apology still to this day. In fact, the, the, the dilapidated conditions of these housing projects were on purpose. Even as we talk in the 2020s, 2023, you got uh, project buildings all over New York City. They're not even doing repairs. Toxins in the water. All of this stuff is on purpose. But yet, they're treating us equal. See, if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. Now, the concept of this NAACP, they were fighting this integration thing when they were, when they should have just been fighting for equal treatment see because today nobody's colored so who the hell is the NAACP representing it's all bullshit it's propaganda they are here to enforce the identity of you being color remember a person of color color is the assemblance of assembly of crumb that which appears to be but not real in reality a deceptive appearance a disguise so these organizations are around to make it seem like they're fighting for us when they're keeping you in an identity that leaves you disenfranchised. Matter of fact, a few years ago, right? Rachel Dozer, so-called white woman. She put weave in her hair and she pretended to be a black woman. She rose up the ranks and became the president of the NAACP. Because anybody can be a part of some shit that's a disguise. Because everybody's pretending to be somebody. Right? Awesome documentary on Netflix about Rachel Dozer. Check it out. She put weave in her hair, start speaking with little Ebonics, start talking with the you know movements in her neck, and everybody thought she was the sister. But many of them did that all through history to get grant money and all this stuff, the money for the minorities. They're perpetrating being a minority in a minute to get that bag. But minority in its inception simply uh, denotes to you being incompetent, you being a child not being able to handle your affairs. So when they say minorities, they're talking about wards of the state. Oh, those people that have no identity. But it sounds nice, right? Rainbow Coalition, all that shit sounds good. But humanity is not a crayon box. People have nationalities, family. 
I, I love this stuff, man. I, I love getting the record right, you know, because I know it's going to be a lot of young people that's going to be picking up listens and picking up podcast content like this. And they're going to snap out of this whitewashing dream that they have people under. Because all there is is left is the truth. You know, once they get done selling the lies, they no longer can find buyers of the lie. Everybody else going to be looking for the truth. So this situation with the NAACP goes on to say the judge's decision. Hold up. I don't want to skip nothing. Yep. Here we go. The authorities uh, executive secretary then made this decision, this secession, although projects in white neighborhoods would remain all white white projects. This still makes me laugh. The authority would admit more white applicants to its nearly all black West Side courts projects and to Hunter's Point, where black and white tenants remain segregated by building. It was a meaningless secession because whites were unlikely to apply to reside in West Side courts now that they had rapidly increasing opportunities to move to the suburbs. See, they start giving them vouchers. See, we had to fight for the right to get vouchers when they gave the poor whites vouchers. So they keep saying like, we, we need handouts when they was the first ones that got handouts. So they got the vouchers. And about time, our people got the vouchers. <laughs> people that would, would rent you the property would deny your voucher. Nah, we're not going to rent to you. Nah, I can't sell to you. Furthering this system of racism because racism is an idea. It's not an outfit. You don't can't say, oh, I know what that looks like. That person must be racist. Nope. You can't look at an idea that's in somebody's head. So you can participate and perpetuate racism and nobody will know the wiser. That's why it's still going on. And we try to explain this to this government, to this administration. And they say, oh, I don't know this racism you're talking about. Could you explain it to me? Because you better explain it to me. And we're still having this argument. Even now, they're talking about having uh, a commission to talk about giving reparations. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of slave movies later, but the Jews got their reparations. And we still trying to think about having a conversation with y'all about what we going to do. But y'all printed $7 trillion and pocketed in y'all money during the pandemic. Okay, make that make sense. I like to add these footnotes while I'm going over the book because I'm trying to show you the correlation between the past and today. That nothing has changed. Only a decision to assign African Americans to an all-white project would have promoted integration. But such a proposal was not an offer by the authority. Temporary war units at Hunter's Point still housed African Americans 25 years after the war ended. Although most whites had left Hunter's Point by then, few African Americans could find homes, apartments elsewhere in the city or in its Enrons. So even when we had the money to do for ourselves, to live elsewhere, they wouldn't even sell to you. Your money's no good here. Right, the, the, the famous movie or the famous play that was turned into a movie, A Raisin in the Sun. It was about a black family that the father passed away and the mother, you know, got the money from the insurance claim and she had enough money to buy herself her first home. So she buys a, her first home in a nice neighborhood. But this nice neighborhood was so-called a white neighborhood. And the whites 
gathered together and said, we'll pay you triple the amount you pay for your house to move out. This was happening all over the country. See, racism is an idea. The judge's decision was an NAACP victory. He ruled that the authority's policy violated the 14th Amendment. The California Appeals Court upheld the finding, instructing San Francisco to abandon segregation and assign black families to projects outside the Western Edition. With contempt from the spirit of the court order, the authorities established three new public housing projects in other areas that by then had few white residents, ensuring the segregation in these neighborhoods would be reinforced. Moreover, the California decision was not widely imitated. Nationwide segregation in public housing remained the rule. See, even if they passed a law in the court, I mean, they, you know, won a court ruling and a law got changed and, oh, you're violating their 14th Amendment rights. They end up creating more projects that further enforce segregation because the whites no longer lived in the projects. The government started to give them vouchers to find housing when they should have gave everyone vouchers to find housing because you were supposed to help humanity, right? But that's not racism, right? Okay. Harry Truman became president upon Roosevelt's death in 1945. By the time he was elected in his own right in 1948, now keep in mind, before we get to this, the Civil War would have never been won if our people didn't fight into the war. In fact, you had thousands of black soldiers that were never paid for their service in the war. Never paid. And then after the fact, they were supposed to get grants to find housing for fighting in the war, and the government reneged. They forced these ex-soldiers that fought for the freedom of this country into projects that then later became goddamn projects to house slaves interesting man by the time he was elected in his own right in 1948 the lack of civilian housing had reached a crisis the millions of returning world war ii veterans and their baby boom families needed shelter and there was a severe shortage in 1949 truman proposed a new public housing effort conservative Republicans had long opposed any government involvement in private housing in the private housing market. They had supported the Lanham Act, the Lanham Act as a war measure only because it contained a commitment that all federal housing for war workers would be demolished or taken over by localities after hostilities ceased. To defeat uh, Truman's bill, they attempted to saddle the legislation with an amendment prohibiting segregation and racial discrimination in public housing. See, the trick was, we're going to stop segregation in public housing, but then public housing became only for so-called black people. Isn't that segregation? <laughs> it's called doublespeak. We in the land of the forked tongue. The Lanham Act, right, to defeat Truman's bill, they attempted to saddle legislation, right? The conservatives knew that if such an amendment were adopted, Southern Democrats would kill the legislation. Without the amendment, the Southerners would support public housing as they had other progressive economic legislative legislation throughout the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, provided the bills did not challenge segregation. 
Many Southern Democrats particularly wanted public housing for white constituents in their own district and states. This still makes me laugh, man, white projects. <laughs> Liberals led by Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey and Illinois Senator Paul Douglas had to choose between enacting a segregated public housing program or no program at all. On the Senate floor, Douglas proclaimed, I should like to point out to my Negro friends what a large amount of housing they will get under this act. See, they made it seem like we was going to get housing when we got motherfucking projects that look like army bases or prisoner compounds. See, the housing thing, like you didn't get a yard and, you know, you could water your yard and you had a picket fence. Like, nah, that's that wasn't happening. So they were furthering to make sure that so-called blacks were not integrated into suburbs. But we were the middle class because many of us had the bag. This is why they had the black Wall Streets. We had hundreds of towns where we were self-sufficient when they were pushing this segregation shit. So when they left us alone, we started to do better for ourselves. And what happened with black Wall Street? The mobs of angry whites burnt the town down in 24 hours to the ground. And that wasn't an act of terrorism in this country. Right, right, okay, let's keep it going. goes on to say I am ready to appeal to history and to time that it is in the best interest of the Negro race that we carry through the housing program as planned rather than put in the bill an amendment which will inevitably defeat it the Senate and House rejected the proposed integration amendments and in 1949 Housing Act was adopted permitting local authorities to continue to design separate public housing projects for blacks and whites or to segregate blacks and whites within projects. Whether such segregation was in anyone's best interest is doubtful. True, without the public housing, uh, tens of thousands of African Americans would have had to remain in tenements that were out of compliance with the most minimal municipal buildings and health codes, all on purpose. But with the segregated projects, African-Americans became more removed from mainstream society than ever. Packed into high-rise ghettos where community life was impossible, where access to jobs and social services was more difficult, and were where supervision of adolescents and even a semblance of community policing was impractical. Now keep in mind, the, the, the very first ghettos before this house the Jewish community. That's where the term ghetto comes from. They don't want you to know about that. The NAACP, for one, was unwilling to sacrifice integration for more housing and supported the 1949 Integration Amendment. Despite its cynical sponsorship, so did a few congressional radicals. By led, led by Vito uh, Marcinantonio of New York, who argued on the House floor that you have no right to use housing against civil rights. Housing is advanced in the interest of the general welfare and the interest of strengthening democracy. When you separate civil rights from housing, you weaken that general welfare. In the wake of Congress's repudiation of integration, government administrators reiterated a commitment to segregation, insisting that 
they could not impose by regulation what Congress specifically rejected. The director of the Federal Division of Slum Clearance justified the use of redevelopment funds to demolish black neighborhoods and replace them with housing for whites, saying it does not appear reasonable to assume that we can impose an anti-segregation requirement in light of the congressional intention as evidenced by its vote on the amendment. With funds from the 1949 Act, massive segregated high-rise projects were constructed nationwide, including the Robert Taylor and Cabrini Green Homes in Chicago. Now, the Robert Taylor and the Cabrini Green Homes in Chicago were the very first implementation of these all-black projects. That's where it started, where they would pour thousands and thousands of our people on top of each other, throw a little crime in, throw a little drugs in, throw a little uh, profiling in, and extra policing, and you got a, a, a degradation of a people. You got a re-enslaving of a people. The Cabrini... Chicago, the Rosen Homes and Schuylkill Falls in Philadelphia, the Van Dyke Houses in New York City, and the Pruitt uh, Igo Towers in St. Louis. Although public housing was rapidly becoming a program exclusively for African Americans, see, working class whites were accommodated in places where they still needed housing. The, the Igo Towers, for example, were initially reserved for whites only, while Pruitt was for African-Americans. So they had two different projects, one for whites, one for blacks. So how did we end up so-called being the only inhabitants of these projects? Because that was the project. To mask this idea of racism, white supremacy, segregation, Jim Crow, wrap all of that shit into one and hide it in these project buildings. The Igo Towers, for example, were initially reserved for whites only, while the Pruitts were for African Americans. Black families were accepted to the Igo only when whites could no longer be found to fill the vacancies. The vacancies. In about a dozen states, among them California, Iowa, Minnesota, Virginia, and Wisconsin, the few uh, suburban officials who may have wanted integrated developments were prevented by state constitutional amendments adopted in the 1950s that required a local referendum before building a low-income family public housing project. Middle-class white communities then systematically vetoed public housing proposals. So now they started to say, we wanna build projects in white communities because now they started to gear towards the projects being solely a location for black people. A lower federal court found such referendum requirements unconstitutional because their racial motivation was so obvious. Referenda were not required, for example, for low-income senior citizen housing. But in 1971, the Supreme Court ruled otherwise, upholding the referendum provisions on the grounds that they preserved democratic decision-making. In 1952, its last year in office, the Truman administration had adopted a new racial equity formula. 
that required local housing authorities that practice segregation to build separate projects to house low-income black families in proportion to their need. In an attempt to address a pervasive situation in which large numbers of white designated units remained vacant while African-Americans stayed impatiently on overflowing waiting lists. Wow. Dwight D. Eisenhower succeeded Truman as president in 1953, becoming the first Republican to hold office in 20 years. A political realignment with Republicans became becoming more conservative than Northern Democrats on matters of racial equality was underway. Soon, the new administration began to reverse the few halting steps towards non-discrimination that the Roosevelt and Truman administration had taken or considered. Following the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in validating separate but equal public education, uh, Birchman Fitzpatrick, general counsel of the Housing and Home Finance Agency, stated that the decision did not apply to housing. In 1955, President Eisenhower's housing administrator told a congressional committee that the government should not move to precipitously to eliminate racial segregation from federal programs. The administration formally abolished a policy it had never been enforced, that African-Americans and whites receive public housing of equal quality. It also ended even nominal adherence to requirements that local housing authorities give priority to the neediest applicants regarding regardless of race and that the net supply of housing available to African Americans not be reduced by demolition projects. See, that's what they were really creating, demolition projects. Because once they crammed us into the projects, they demolished the family unit. And that's what it was about. Because many of these so-called low-income housing and the projects, many of the requirements were it can't be a man in the house. The woman wouldn't, wouldn't get the, the housing uh, grant if she had a man in the house. See, they was taking dad out the home. Right. This shit was all the psyop. In 1950s, some housing authorities built scatter sites rather than concentrated units, having recognized that high-rise ghettos for the poor aggravated residents desperation and generated more crime. They also hoped that scattered units would provoke less opposition from whites. In the mid-1970s, the federal government began to recommend that cities use their public housing funds this way. So first they were having public housing was like scattered sites where it wasn't no like towers of people. You know what I'm saying? They had like little small communities where they actually looked like real housing. And then later it all became this like prison compound shit. Interesting, man. Yet most cities, Chicago and Philadelphia being extreme examples, continue to situate public housing in predominantly low-income African-American neighborhoods. A few municipalities did begin to use funds for scatter site projects. But these were typically cities where small, low-income African-American populations. 
Public housing authorities not only continued to choose segregated sites for new developments, but made efforts to segregate existing projects where integration might have been tolerated. In the 1960s, for example, the Housing Authority of Savannah evicted all white families from its integrated Francis uh, Bartow project, creating an all-black complex. The authority justified its policy by observing that with national and local housing shortages, abating whites could easily find homes elsewhere, and African Americans needed public projects more. See, they started to push this like, yo, we trying to help the black people out. But they forced the white people out the project so they could fill the projects with our people. And then they gave the white people housing vouchers so they could find real homes. See, they got handouts, but then they keep shunning you, saying you on welfare and you all this other shit. Keep saying we, we on drugs when 52% of the drug users are white people. In fact, 98% of the population in the state of Vermont, the drug overdoses and the opioid crisis are all so-called white people. But they keep making you think that this drug problem is in our community when they forced us into these projects and then dropped some drugs in there. What do you know? Hell of, uh, hell of a concoction, right? What do you think the outcome's gonna be? Then you had the so-called war on drugs, which was a goddamn joke. Now it's a war on people refusing to take drugs. <laughs> Remember how they did with the discrimination for people refusing to take the vaccine? That's the same thing. Man, goes on to say, by the 19, by 1984, investigative reporters from the Dallas Morning News visited federally funded developments in 47 uh, metropolis, excuse me, 47 metropolitan areas. The reporters found that the nation's nearly 10 million public housing tenants were almost always segregated by race and that every predominantly white occupied project had facilitated amenities, services, and maintenance that were superior to what was found in predominantly black occupied projects, right? So they'll have a, a co-op, right? They'll have a nice little situation for the whites and it, it looks kind of like a project, but they got amenities. They might have a swimming pool. They got, you know, repairs in they in building. They didn't have drugs in their building. So it was, slowly but shortly morphing into a project to be a project on how to house our segregated population in the country so we can further this institutional racism without calling it racism. In the 1960s, when few white families were still living in urban public housing, civil rights groups had little remaining reason to challenge the discriminatory assignment of tenants. Instead, their focus shifted to opposing the placement of what had become predominantly African-American projects and already segregated neighborhoods, increasing residents' racial isolation. In 1976, the Supreme Court adopted lower court findings that the Chicago Housing Authority with the complacency of federal housing agencies had unconstitutionally selected sites to maintain the city's segregation, segregated landscape. Although the authority has suggested tracks that would integrate white neighborhoods, each project was subject to veto by the aldermen in whose ward it was proposed. 
In his ruling, the district judge who originally heard the case wrote, no criterion other than race can plausibly explain the veto of over 99.5% of the housing units located on the white sites, which were originally selected on the basis of the Chicago Housing Authority's expert judgment, and at the same time, the rejection of only 10% or so of the units on Negro sites. In the years leading up to the final ruling, the city of Chicago had blocked efforts by the CHA and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, to comply with, con with uh, consent decrees and lower court decisions. In 1971, for example, CHA officials identified land for new projects that included some predominantly white areas. Unlike the high-rises the agency had built to concentrate public housing in a black ghetto, these proposals were for low-rise scatter housing, but they still would have had African-American tenants. Mayor Richard J. Daley rejected the proposal, saying that public housing should not go where it was not accepted. You're not going to build a project in my white neighborhood because <laughs> I'm not living in the project. This was the stance of the so-called whites. Because remember, white is a class system. They, they invented this class system in 1681 after Bacon's Rebellion when there were so-called white indentured servants and so-called black indentured servants who would raise up and cause a rebellion on the plantations because the elite was amassing wealth off of labor of any skin color. So when the classes that were being oppressed started to come together, they started to raise one class over the other. Henceforth, the invention of the white race in 1681. Before 1681, no one was referred to as a white person, and they still had the same skin all through history. It's an idea. In the years leading up to the, okay, here we go. In defeating HUD before the Supreme Court, President Gerald Ford's solicitor, General Robert Bork, expressed the government's opposition to placing public housing in white areas. There will be an, a, an enormous practical impact on innocent communities who have to bear the burden of housing, who will have to house a plaintiff class from Chicago, which they wronged in no way. Thus, the federal government described non-discriminatory housing policies as punishment visited on the innocent so they were saying if you build these projects full of black people in our white neighborhood that's like punishing us forcing us to live near these niggas but everybody's equal right right that's why the police only patrol the damn projects because they know the outcome of the conditions in which they placed upon the people they know what's going to come in these projects they know it's going to be a shooting every other day they know it's going to be a fight it's going to be all kind of crime going on in these places because that was the idea of the project like a science project right with all the ingredients needed to produce a particular outcome high-rise slavery if you will man that's crazy the supreme court rejected bork's objection upholding lower court orders that HUD must henceforth construct apartments in predominantly white areas of Chicago and its suburbs. The CHA, HUD, responded was to cease building public housing altogether. Yet, 
even if the CHA HUD and the city of Chicago itself had complied with the Supreme Court's decision and built units in the city's white communities, it mostly would have been too late. The litigation had dragged on for years, during which time most of the vacant land in white neighborhoods that could have been used for scatter site homes had been developed. Following the Supreme Court decision, the separation of African-American and other families in Chicago increased. As whites and integrated urban neighborhoods departed from the suburbs, the Chicago area, the area's share of African-Americans living in all black areas grew. Other federal court decisions on settlements in Baltimore, Dallas, San Francisco, Yonkers, and elsewhere also recognized that HUD or local government had created or perpetuated segregation. See, we're talking about generations and generations and administrations after administration that all push the same policy. It don't matter who's in the seat because the people around the president is all pushing the same ideology. Racism is an idea that can't be seen because you can't look inside somebody's head. Interesting, man. In Miami, for example, African-Americans eligible for public housing were assigned to distinct projects. Listen to this part. In Miami, for example, African-Americans eligible for public housing were assigned to distinct projects while eligible whites were given vouchers for rentals of private apartments to subsidize their dispersal throughout the community. It was not until 1998 that civil rights groups won a requirement that vouchers be offered to African-Americans as well, too late to reverse the city segregation. In most other cities, court orders and legal settlements were also not sufficient to undo the segregation that federal states and local governments had created and abated. So they gave both class of people vouchers all this white people shit talking about these niggas getting handouts. Well, y'all were the first people that got handouts. But when it came time for us to use our voucher, they're not accepted. Go back to the projects. Racism is an idea, folks. From the beginning, the real estate industry bitterly fought public housing of any kind and had support from Republicans in Congress. Industry lobbyists insisted that socialism and housing was a threat to private enterprise. A difficult argument to make when from the 1930s to the end of World War II, private enterprise had been unwillingly and unable to build dwellings affordable for working and middle class families, black and white. But once the housing shortage eased, the real estate lobby was successful in restricting public housing to subsidize projects for the poorest families only. New federal and local regulations set forth strict upper income limits for families in public housing. Beginning in about 1950, many middle-class families, white and black, were forced out under these new rules, although many would have preferred to stay in the low-rise scattered site and well-maintained projects that mostly characterized pre-1949 public dwellings. This policy changed mostly completely by the 1960s. Uninsured that integrated public housing would cease to be possible, it transformed public housing into a warehousing system for the poor. 
a warehousing system for the poor. The conditions of public projects rapidly deteriorated, partly because housing authority maintenance workers and their families had to leave the building where they worked when their wages made them ineligible to live there, and partly because the loss of middle-class rents resulted in inadequate maintenance, maintenance budgets. The federal government had required public housing to be made available only to families who needed substantial subsidies, while the same government declined to provide sufficient subsidies to make public housing a decent place to live. The loss of middle-class tenants also removed a constituency that had proposed the political strength to insist on adequate funds for their projects, upkeep, and amenities. As a result, the condition and then the reputation of public housing collapsed. By 1973, the changeover was mostly complete. The changeover was mostly complete. Richard Nixon, right? Remember the drug laws and all this and all this policy. Business as usual. President Nixon announced that public housing should not be forced on white communities. Ain't that a bitch. When they first created the projects for whites only. Class. See what's going on? Not skin color. Class. Richard Nixon announced that public housing should not be forced on white communities that did not want it. And he reported to Congress that many public housing projects were monstrous. Depressing, monstrous, depressing places run down, overcrowded, and crime-ridden. You don't say. See, that that was the project, i.e. the science project. They created these conditions for these outcomes. And then they, they argue on the subject of that's a worse condition for people to live in for white people to live in. See the distinction? But what about people in general? Because remember, we're all equal, right? After slavery, right? (laughs) Throughout the mid 20th century, government housing projects frequently define the racial character of neighborhoods that endure for many years after. Reflecting on public housing in his state, uh, Carrie McWilliams, who had been California's housing commissioner in the early years of World War II, later wrote that the federal government had, in effect, been planting the seeds of Jim Crow practices throughout the region under the guise of respecting local attitudes. See? They were speaking for people that didn't even make these statements. The people won't feel away if you build the project in this area. When, if it's decent housing, the people should usher it in, right? Because it's affordable housing for all. But they knew that this project was just that. A project. I'll read that part again. Carrie McMillan, who had been California's housing commissioner in the early years of World War II, later wrote that the federal government had, in effect, been planting the seeds of Jim Crow practices throughout the region under the guise of respecting local attitudes, i.e., racism my dude we can only wonder what our urban areas would look like today if instead of creating segregation where it never or perhaps barely existed federal and local governments had pushed in the opposite direction using public housing as an example of how integrated living could be successful 
This is crazy. Now, inside the book, they have this ad, right? This ad was like a flyer that they posted around all the communities. And the flyer reads, look, and it shows a row of houses. Look at these homes now. An entire block ruined by Negro invasion. So we talking about reverse gentrification? You don't say. It says an entire block ruined by Negro invasion. Every house marked X now occupied by Negroes. Actual photograph of 4300 West Bell Place. Save your home. Vote for segregation. This was the type of propaganda they was pushing. But everybody equal, right? See, you're never going to find a racist in this country because everybody going to say, I'm not racist. Some of my friends are black, right? The girl I, I get my coffee from at Starbucks is black. I'm not racist, but racism isn't an outfit. It's an idea. I said racism isn't an outfit. It's an idea. Let's move on. Racial zoning. This is interesting here. Chapter three, racial zoning. We like to think of America, American history as a continuous march of progress towards greater freedom and greater equality and greater justice. But sometimes we move backward dramatically. So residential integration declined steadily from 1880 to the mid 20th century. And it had mostly stalled since then. After the Civil War liberated slaves dispersed throughout the United States seeking work and to escape the violence of the poor, the post-war uh, South. For several decades, many lived relatively peaceful in the East, the Midwest, and the West. But in 1877, the disputed presidential election of the previous autumn was resolved in the compromise that gave the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, the White House, in return for Southern Democrat, Democratic support of their presidential candidate, Republicans agreed to withdraw federal troops who had been protecting African-Americans in the defeated Confederacy. The period of black liberation known as the Reconstruction uh, came to an end. In the South, the former slaveholding uh, aristocrat re re renewed African-American subjugation. Supported by a campaign of violence against the newly emancipated slaves, Southern states adopted segregation statutes, Jim Crow laws, denied the right to vote, segregated in public transportation, schools, and private accommodations, victimized by lynching and other forms of brutality. African Americans in the South were reduced to, again, to be a lower caste status. See, everything has to do with status. It's nothing about skin color. Plantation owners redefined their former slaves as sharecroppers to maintain harsh and exploitative conditions. Events in the African-American town of Hamburg in Edgefield, District of South Carolina, were typically of many other across the former Confederacy were white. Parliamentary groups mobilized to regain control of state government. Their aim was simple, prevent African-Americans from voting. In July 1876, a few months before the election, they gave the presidency to Hayes. A violent rampage in Hamburg abolished the civil rights of freed slaves, calling itself the Red Shirts. <laughs> Ain't that a bitch. A collection of white supremacists killed six African-Americans and then murdered four others whom the gang had captured. 
Benjamin Tillman laid the red shirts. These niggas called themselves the red shirts. Are you fucking serious? This is before the Klan. They led, he led the red shirts. The massacre propelled him to a 24-year career as the most vit, uh, vitriolic racist in the U.S. Senate. See, we talking about the Senate. So people in government were starch racist, right? They were proud motherfucking racist. Spoke racism off the off their tongue, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like sweet words. But we understanding that racism is not an outfit. It's, it's an idea. Following that massacre, the terror did not abate. In September, a rifle club of more than 500 whites across the Savannah River. Let us try to have a rifle club today. A rifle club. They're going to say these angry niggas is trying to overthrow the government. But, you know, these these friendly white people, just uh, so-called whites, right? Because I won't refer to them as white because that shit was adopted in 1681. There's no such thing as a person with white skin or black skin. Let's come back to our natural mind. But they came together, just some 400 friendly whites, and created a rifle club across Savannah River from Georgia and camped outside Hamburg. A local judge begged the governor to protect the African-American population, but to no avail. The rifle club then moved on the nearby hamlet of Ellen of Ellington, killing as many as 50 African-Americans. President U Ulysses S. Grant then sent in federal troops who temporarily calmed things down but did not eliminate the ongoing threats. See, after slavery, remember, the Civil War was won because we fought in the war. Many of us were the soldiers. But then, after the war, we needed to be protected by the soldiers because nobody would treat us equally. You see that famous picture when it's a few uh, kids trying to go to the high school that they just wanted to get an education and they were escorted by the fucking military? And the whites and Jerry Jones was in that picture, right? <laughs> of all people. But this was the idea of the country that never changed. Employers at the Edgefield uh, District told African Americans they would be fired. And land uh, owners threatened black sharecroppers with eviction if they voted to maintain a biracial state government. When the 1876 election took place, fraudulent, fraudulent white ballots were cast. The total vote in Edgefield substantially exceeded the entire voting age population. Kind of like when y'all voted in the Zoom call president, this Biden character, right? The Zoom call president, the nigga that you never see only on a video here or two, here or there. And he's the only president in history that got 80 million votes by way of mail-in ballots all bullshit again but then there's a million immigrants that rushed the border since he's been in and ain't nobody talking about none of that shit crime is up like 80 percent in everybody's city nobody's talking about it but 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 trump can make a tweet and the whole fucking country is outraged D do you see that like 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 i thought we would scrutinize presidency after presidency if these niggas is fucking up but ain't nobody saying nothing in opposition to what this administration is Subject, subjecting people to? Are we fucking serious? The hypocrisy, though. And I ain't vote for Trump or this nigga, but I, I'm just saying, look at how everybody was so in outrage and Trump's a racist when Biden is in a picture with the head of the KKK. He was a fucking keynote speaker there. But uh, that's here and there, right? 
here nor there. And he's been in government like 80 fucking years of his life, right? But nah, that's here nor there. Remember, we're talking about policy that was implemented administration after administration after administration. It does not matter who's in the seat. If the judges still push the same policy, if the senators push the same policy, if the congressmen and congresswomen push the same policy, racism is not an outfit, it's an idea. Results like these across the state gave segregationists, the Democrats, the margin, segregationalist Democrats, right? Everybody keeps saying vote Democrat when they were the ones pushing the policy. But Republicans too, we talking about wings of the same bird. So let's not get into that fight. I'm just talking about anybody pushing a fucked up policy on our people, we should not be voting for it. Whatever the party. IAB, say it with me. IAB, it's all bullshit. Results like this across the state gave segregationalist Democrats the major the margin of victory they needed to seize control of South Carolina's government from the black-white coalition that had held office during Reconstruction. So during Reconstruction, you had a lot of so-called blacks that were holding office. So things were kind of balancing out. But it was the Democrats that said, we got to get these niggas out of office. Big facts. Tillman later bragged that the leading white men of Edgefield had decided to seize the first opportunity that Negroes might offer them to provoke a riot and teach the Negroes a lesson. Although a coroner's jury indicted Tillman and 93 other red shirts for the murders, they were never prosecuted and came to offer protection. The campaign in Edgefield was of a pattern followed not only in South Carolina, but throughout the South. With African-Americans disenfranchised and white supremacists in control, South Carolina instituted a system of segregation and exploitation that persisted for the next century. In 1940, the state legislation erected a statue honoring Tillman. <laughs> on the Capitol grounds. And in 1946, uh, Clemson, one of the state's public universities, renamed its main hall in Tillman's honor. It was in this environment that hundreds of thousands of African-Americans fled the former Confederacy in the first half of the 20th century. See, 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 this is what, what, what they're not teaching in schools. See, we're not talking about hatred. We're talking about getting the story right. Why don't y'all say what y'all did? See, you can't make it right if you don't put it on the record. And this is why we're qualifying literature like this to put it on the record. And this book was written by a Jewish man. See? Truth has no, no, not, no identity. Truth has no race. Truth is what it is. Interesting stuff, guys. I'm going to read one more. Uh, position and then I'll just close out because I encourage you know people to support the author and pick up this book add it to your library the imposition of the new African American subordination eventually spread to the federal government as well Washington DC in the night in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries African Americans in federal civil service had been making great progress some rose to positions whose responsibilities included supervising white officers, workers, and manual laborers. This came to an end when Woodrow Wilson was elected. See, every time they put another person in, in office, they retuned their policies of racism. 
under the guise of we're going to make shit right. Woodrow Wilson was elected president in 1912, although he had served as president of Princeton University in New Jersey and then as governor of the state, his origins were in the South and he was an uncompromising believer in segregation and in a black inferiority. At Princeton, for example, he refused to consider African-Americans for admission. You couldn't even go to the college if you had the money. Now, we all fighting to go to these HSBCUs when they all were formed by so-called white people. They're not black-founded schools. That's all bullshit. But they push that propaganda with the Cosby Show. Remember? Everybody go to Hillman, the, the fake black college, and then everybody was wearing historically black college sweaters all through the TV show because that was raising up the admission of people going to these so-called black colleges that were founded with white money. Right. That later became spy centers because they got you into these fraternities and these sororities when you were pledging your oath, kind of like a secret society, and they would usurp the 10% of the community that, that, that would be of some use to them, and they would use them against their own people. But look how they did Cosby after he did all that great work for them. Right. Render unto Caesar everything that belongs to Caesar. In 1913, Wilson and his cabinet approved the implementation of segregation in government officials and government offices. Curtains were installed to separate black and white clerical workers. Yo, they had curtains separating black and white <laughs> government workers, B. So how the government going to stop racism when they was practicing that shit in their own buildings. Right. Curtains were installed to separate black and white clerical workers, separate cafeterias, separate cafeterias were created, separate uh, basement toilets were constructed for African-Americans. Black supervisors were demoted to ensure that no African-American oversaw a white employer. One official uh, responsible for implementing segregation was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin, 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 oh my God, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You already know, Roosevelt. So this nigga becomes president later, but he was a proud racist. You see how they make sure they, 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 they vote for these people that's going to continue to push a policy to enforce something that they never wanted to get off of? They never had an idea of making us equal, even to this day. Now, they pushed segregation. But as I said, aside from Black Wall Street that they burnt to the ground in 24 hours because we was doing for ourselves. See, when we were forced to do for ourselves, when we were just to be left alone, we thrived. And they fucking hated that. We had hundreds of towns besides Black Wall Street, Roosevelt, Rosewood. We, we had hundreds of towns that they all destroyed because they envied you doing for yourself and when they give you help they give you the worst kind of fucking help that leave you helpless but they they, they want everybody to be equal right man this nigga Frank, Franklin Delano Roosevelt he might or might not have been enthusiastic about segregation but it was an aspect of the changing national political culture in which he matured and then he did not challenge What we doing? What we talking about? What we doing? What we talking about? I'll leave you with this last one. Chapter 7. IRS support and compliant, compliance regulators. 
As public housing packed African-Americans into urban projects and federal loan insurance subsidies, excuse me, and federal loan insurance subsidies, white families to disperse into single family suburban homes. Other racial policies of federal, state, and local government contributed to and reinforced the segregation of the, uh, the metropolitan areas. One was the willingness of the IRS to grant tax-exempt status to churches, hospitals, universities, neighborhood associations, and other groups that promoted residential segregation. See, this racism isn't an outfit and it's, it's an idea. So you mean to tell me the IRS is racist? So they was giving tax breaks to anybody that was promoting segregation in their institutions, in their buildings? You don't say. You don't think this is not taking place today? Okay. Okay. Man, I'm gonna read that again. The segregate uh, one of the willingness of the Internal Revenue Service to grant tax exempt status to churches, hospitals, universities, neighborhoods, associations, and other groups that promoted residential segregation. Another was the complacency of regulatory agencies and the discriminatory actions of the insurance companies and banks they supervised. The color of law does not argue that merely because government regulators, uh, governments regulate a private business, the firm's activities become state action. And if discriminatory constitutes de jure segregation, such a claim would eliminate the distinction between the public and private spheres in being uh, incremental to a free democratic society. But because slavery's legacy, the Constitution gives African Americans a special degree of protection. The three constitutional amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, adopted after the Civil War were specifically intended to ensure that African-Americans had equal status. But keep in mind, all men are created equal, right? Doesn't that, doesn't that say that in their writings, all men are created equal? So you don't need protection and government protection if I'm equal. I shouldn't be put under conditions where my fucking life's in danger just because I'm trying to be. See, the original 13th Amendment, all men are created equal and everybody was free. But remember, the original 13th Amendment was never properly ratified. They fraudulently did that when Lincoln caught a bullet. And then they started to adopt this fake policy like they freed us and they gave us something. Because why did they have the Civil Rights Act of 1871? And then 100 years later, Martin Luther King is marching for the rights to sign the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. And then we're still marching in 2023 because you're still begging for them to treat you civil under a false identity. People of color, black, Negroes, colors, all that shit got nothing to do with your national identity. Black denotes to a legal term called civilitaire mortus. Your rights are civilly dead in the eyes of the law. That's why you're still screaming black life matters. And they keep telling you it don't because they saying that you have no political standing in this country. And that's just because they kept pushing a fake name on you that wasn't your name. Webster's Merriam Dictionary, 1878, the original definition for American, the copper colored racist hair, 
when Columbus arrived, later applied to the descendants of Europeans. Put a penny up to your skin, copper colored. When we're speaking of the hue, but your color denotes the description. It does not speak of your identity. As I would quote one of our scholars of our time, Dr. John Henry Clark, it's nothing wrong with the word black, nothing at all. Just doesn't relate to a land, history or people. The proper name of a people must always relate to land, history and culture. Right. He wasn't no black scholar. He knew he wasn't black. But you got people perpetrating that off like, yeah, these people are black. Because you see a black statue in Egypt, that don't mean the people were calling themselves black. We got to wrap our heads around this concept because that's how we're losing. We in the streets screaming police brutality when that's not a legal fucking crime. Murder's a crime, my dude. Murder. <laughs> you shoot an Asian person, they're going to get the cop tried for murder. They're not going to be, oh my God, Asian life matter. Yellow life matter. They're not in the streets doing none of that. Why are we the only people still doing that? An exercise in futility. You keep doing the same thing over and over and over, it becomes a form of insanity. In the 60s, those protests were needed. We shocked them. Oh my God, these people organized. But if you're still marching in 2023, it's now comedy for so-called white people. So much so, it's more white people at the Black Lives Matter protest than your people. Because <laughs> everybody could be black. Ask Rachel Dozer, who became the president of the NAACP, was a so-called white woman. Put weave in her hair and start talking like she was from the ghetto. And she became the president for many years before they found out her identity. But as I said, who the hell does the NAACP represent? And they just had their image awards and all this other crap. Gave an award to Will Smith for playing a slave yet again in a movie called Emancipation. And that's what they did to Will Smith after he supposedly slapped Chris Rock and all that shit was staged. But it's because of the treatment and the rituals and all the funny shit that he had to do to get his career. And he got tired of it. And he had a moment. And they wanted to make a joke of this nigga because he's always the butt of the joke. And he had a human moment and felt a kind of way. But the NAACP said, we're going to use Will as our image of the year, our man of the year, for playing another slave movie. Right. <laughs> Ain't that a bitch. They only respect you when you playing a slave, but yet they don't want to compensate you for your enslavement, no reparations, but they make billions of dollars off another slave movie. And that's the idea that's perpetrated in this country. That's the ideology that we call in racism. That's the system that we're talking about. And everybody keeps saying, what system? You're, you're just making an excuse that the system's on you and all this other shit and you could do for yourself. I'm trying to tell you that this shit is rigged against us at large, collectively. Because they give a few of us some dirty pieces of silver. That don't mean you made it as a people. That means you sold out your people. Niggas is still playing slave movies in 2023, my nigga. Make it make sense, bro. Make it make sense. We're going to close out here. Another powerful, powerful book to add to your library, guys. I give thanks for you. Just uh, spending your most important currency, you paid attention, right? Because in the days of where everyone has a short attention span, five or six seconds like a goldfish, right? Everybody scrolling on TikTok. It's, it's hard for people to pay attention to a podcast and just listen. And we're in the times where people don't read. So I created this book report series to start encouraging people to crack open these books. Because that saying is still real. You want to hide something from these niggas? You put the truth in a book. And they'll never look for it. 
And that's real. And they can keep perpetrating our story on the big screen. And we can keep uh, staying suspended in that uh, space of animation of you're this forever slave. You're this perpetual slave. And Kanye was right. Slavery is a choice. Because if you're still participating in the people that are enforcing your conditions of slavery, then you're no different from the master. Phil nigga, house nigga. Still nigga. But I ain't never been a nigga. Because I ain't ignorant of who I am. I'm not ignorant of my ancestry. I'm not ignorant of why this Negro problem was created. To keep them in the dark of the conditions in which we continue to put them under. And then the minute they they come to their senses and organize and want to have a conversation, we're going to ignore them and pretend we don't know what the fuck they talking about. Reparations. You don't say. Why should we give you... When you keep reminding me of this Jewish Holocaust and the billions of dollars that they keep getting from countries shaking down yearly when originally when this Jewish Holocaust started there was only 2 million Jews that made claim after the money started rolling in some 19 million Jews made claim and and 98% of these people are just Jewish converts they went to the synagogue put, put on a yarmulke and then said I need part of that Holocaust money right but they keep telling you they know the people they enslaved. They keep showing you on the big screen, movie after movie, and they won't even have a conversation. You had a person so-called black in the White House for eight years, and they never brought up the conversation of reparations. Niggas was out here two-stepping. My president is black. We was all Jay-Z'd out. All of these people are, are selling us out because they're, they're distracting you from having that ultimate conversation. When are you going to make it right? with my ancestors and the descendants of my ancestors. That's it. That's all. We're not talking about nothing else. Are you not entertained? We don't do this shit to entertain people, B. I'm trying to get us to tap back into our critical thinking collectively as a people, right? And I don't speak from a, a stance of hate because I don't hate anyone. I love all, as the creator said we should. But I am going to bring the truth to the surface that everyone keeps sweeping under the rug. And that's my job. I am your host, JF Bay. This is the Third Eye High podcast. We deal with a higher consciousness of a flyer culture. And I'm just here to shine my light your way to help you find your light switch and keep your light lit. And as I said, you supported the podcast. That's a form of donation. You paid attention. That's the highest form of currency. I'm compensated. I give thanks. I spent my sweat equity, giving my time to go over this literary work. And you spent your time to pay attention equal exchange of compensation give thanks your word is bond if you want to share the podcast you could share the podcast talk to somebody about what you heard on the podcast you can subscribe to the podcast all of these are forms of donation i run this podcast out of my own pocket no work no sponsorship no none of that if you want to support the podcast with a monetary donation you can hit my cash app dollar sign far out flow f-a-r-o-u-t-f-l-o-w Dollar sign far out flow is my cash app. But as I said, I give thanks. Either way, you support it. Want to salute some of my listeners. Give thanks for everyone tuning in. Uh, Joshua, thanks for tuning in. Dr. Robert, Marcianne, uh, Doobie, JK, Royce, uh, Ray Davis, Cecilia Grace, thanks for always tuning in. Uh, North Star, uh, Charente, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Karen Oliver. Uh, Saduku Moff, thanks for tuning in. Charlie, 
uh, I am Lady Be Blessed. Thanks for tuning in. Michael J, thanks for tuning in, bro. You got to follow for follow. Uh, Michael Kent, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Xander Vasquez, Eternity, Matthew, uh, Asif, uh, Khan, thanks for tuning in. Bobby, uh, Taniella, Tanyel, Dr. Rao, thanks for always tuning in. Jason B, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Marcella, thanks for tuning in. You got to follow for follow. Uh, Joshua, Cassie Cage, thank you for tuning in, sister. And Tracy Johns, thank you for also tuning in. And thank you for everyone listening to the podcast at large. Third Eye High podcast can be listened to on all podcast streaming platforms, Apple, Anchor, Spotify, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcast content, you can find the Third Eye High podcast. I give thanks for everyone tuning in. And always keep your third eye high. Until next time, this was the Book Report series on the Third Eye High podcast, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Peace, love, and more light. Enjoy your day.